0: Gig Gab, the Working Musicians Podcast, Episode 71, for Monday, June 27th, 2016. (laughs) And welcome to Gig Gab, the podcast by, for, and about working musicians. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton.
1: We're here in Las Gatos, California, Paul Kent.
0: How you doing today, Paul?
1: I'm doing fantastic. I had a lot of good gigs last week, but I don't think we're going to talk about gigs today because we have a very special guest.
0: We do. I hear another microphone open. You want to, you want to introduce our guest, Paul?
1: Absolutely, so uh, to all you guys out there in podcast land, all our friends listening, I'm really, really pleased to introduce you all to, uh, he's a friend of mine, uh, he recorded my demo, my band's demo, he's done some amazing things in the music market, and, uh, and we're going to talk about his experiences. Everybody say hello to Mr. Robert Berry, how's it going Robert?
2: Hey man, I'm doing good, hello everybody.
1: Cool, so uh, Robert, we're going to talk about um, your path. And um, I'm going to have a bunch of questions for you about the path from being a local guy to the things on the international stage that you've done. And now you're, you know, in this stage of your career, you're doing some really, really interesting projects. Your acoustic project, your, your Christmas project, um, your recording studio, of course, is, is, uh, is one of the cornerstones of the music business in this area, in the South Bay Area of San Francisco. Uh, but I thought we'd start with uh, some questions about where you started. I mean, you're, you're a guitar player by trade. You're a bass player by trade. What was your first instrument?
2: You know, I'm really a keyboard player by uh, schooling. I had eight years of classical piano and two years of jazz because my dad had a music store here in San Jose that sold actually Vox guitars and amps, the kind of stuff that the Beatles used at the time. <laughs> and even though um, I wasn't that impressed with it until afterwards, um, that really kind of got me going because in those days, my dad would take a spare Vox amp, down to the San Jose Civic Auditorium, where they would have The Who, Cream, uh, The Animals, all these 60s bands playing, and nobody bought any spare equipment whatsoever. So he had the spare amp, and he knew the stage manager, so they'd set me back there with the spare amp in this little glass booth to watch the amp, and I'd get to see all these bands that I didn't care about as much as I should. I mean, to see The Who break up their stuff with only 150 people in the audience Wow. When I think back now, that's amazing, you know. And, uh, and they, they, were they just... had that
0: kind of energy back then. It, was, it didn't matter how big they were, how big of a crowd it was; they'd still break all their stuff up, huh?
2: Oh my God, the, Peter Townsend. Some guy brought. It seems to me it was Stratocaster, and Peter Townsend, I believe, was playing an SG then. And he, the guy, held up the Stratocaster, break it, break it, and Townsend grabbed it and looked at it, and he threw it back, and he goes, "I got a more expensive guitar than that to break." It was just a. <laughs> That's and awesome. sure enough, they just blew up everything, you know, it was, it was, of course, I mean, I was, I don't know, was I nine? I, I was young. Yeah. But um, I was like, wow, what is this all about? And it, so, it gave me the bug, you know, even though I was playing classical and jazz and everything, it gave yeah. me the bug. And I didn't really want to be in a band, but these guys came into my dad's music store. They were seniors in high school. I was in eighth grade and... Their brother was in my eighth grade class and he said, this guy plays piano and maybe you get free equipment if you got him in your band from his dad. Uh, so <laughs> so I started at, well, at eighth grade as, what, 11, 12 years old with guys who are 17 and 18, barely being able to play a chord because I played classical stuff. But with guys that already had been through the growing stages of starting a band and knew what they were doing. So, so gave I, me a, I, yeah. I knew that you were a keyboard player, but here's the interesting question. When
1: was the last time you played a classical piece of music?
2: It's been a long time. I've been trying to actually work on writing some stuff, and we can get into that later because Keith Emerson and I were going to do a new album, and some of it has to be very classical-oriented. Of course, Keith's gone now, but we'll we'll talk about that later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um, I haven't actually played a real classical piece um, for quite a while. I I try not to read music anymore. I read so much music, I'm so stuck to the note, that really during high school and college, I had to learn how to get away from that.
1: Got it, huh. and the the classical underpinnings. That's that's the
2: foundation for your passion for prog rock, right? That gave me the skill to be able to keep up with Keith and Carl, and, and actually play in a band with them because it uh-huh. was terribly hard to do. But yeah, it it was a a great background. It. There's so much that I probably pull from that that I don't even know in my, what I hear with my ears and everything else that I, when I'm producing, it's, it's all part of a tool chest that I have of all these different things that I've learned and it comes in handy at times, you know? Yeah, absolutely.
1: All right. So, uh, you're a piano player and you're, you're getting a a firsthand education watching some of the most famous music acts of the sixties come through town. Yeah. And then what is your first popular music band?
2: Eighth grade, a band called The Reasons Why. And like I said, the guys were all seniors in high school and were playing some of that music that The Who and Cream and everybody was, uh, was doing at the time. But I didn't really know any of it. And then we are doing some Motown. I didn't know anything about that. So I'm learning these things off a of record. And honestly, the acts themselves meant nothing to me. I was playing with you can imagine twelve years old played eighteen year old guys a good drive and they were smoking and they had the girlfriends pregnant <laughs> and one all kinds of stuff is going on you know I was like wow this is my eyes were wide open Absolutely. but playing something like uh, Mustang Sally with some picket or something it didn't mean anything to me until years later where I said oh my god look look what I was exposed to and I I didn't even really know who these guys were. You know, it, it gave me such a foundation because I, I learned it as a piece of music. First of all, not worshiping these guys and having to copy them. I, I, it's hard for me to explain what that did to me. It, it kind of entered my heart and soul in a different way than just hearing it on the radio and liking Wilson Pickett. Let's say well, it's the
1: reverse of how most people come to this, right? Usually, it's like, oh, you feel this piece of music, and you're like, I want to be that. I want to. You know, that's 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 the path of a cover musician. Is like you want to play that music that inspired you and moved you. You're doing it as a rote piece of assignment, you know, to be part of the band. And then later you're realizing that,
2: holy cow, this music moves people like, yeah, amazingly. Well, and so, you're probably, and I guess I, go ahead, I, I analyzed it first, I guess, too, you know, because I had to learn it. Yeah, right?
0: that's what I was going to so, say is you you learned you didn't just play the parts that that stuck with you from when you heard it years prior. You analyzed it and learned it for what it actually was. And a lot of cover bands, especially it's funny you pick. Uh, Mustang Sally. A lot of cover bands miss a lot of the nuance there, right? Yeah. And, oh, yeah. You know, and 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 going and analyzing that song without knowing the you know the baggage that comes with it, probably you picked up a lot more.
2: I would think. And and Dave, you're a drummer, right? I so am. Yeah. You you know how simple those drums are but how effective it is when you keep it simple and most of the guys i played with they were all over the place which totally ruins the song right the drums it's got to be like john bonham it's got to be simple then the rest of the band really gets funky because of that
1: straight well, drum. you know with regards to mustang sally there's still a lot of keith moon playing mustang sally yeah. going on
0: yeah <laughs> That's yeah. True. yeah
2: yeah it, yeah the funny thing for me that when i speak about this and when i thought about this before really is i wound up my studio here, the bulk of the income I made was doing sound-alikes for Miramax Films and Paramount, my my friend's president of soundtracks there. And to do sound-alikes, you have to analyze not only the plane, but the instrument that was used, the tone it makes. If the guitar had flat-wound strings on it, like uh, uh, doing a Time of the Season or something by Zombies, I, you know, I mean, you you got to do it. And if I did a Britney Spears track, let's say... You know, you have to know a synthesizer and all, you have to analyze all it, but then you have to play it. So when I think back now, talking to you guys, I think, wow, that's what I started. I started as an analyzer.
1: <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> all right. So let's move over to um, to the story of Hush. So, you know, I'm sure there were some other bands between your first band and Hush. But Hush was a band in the Bay Area that when I was a, you know, a high school age musician, Hush was everything. I mean, Hush was this band where... They were playing this incredibly beautiful music. Uh, the band just felt so pro. I mean, I guess you know when when you're kind of like a, an amateur high school musician, and mm-hmm. you see these guys, and you know, and in that in that day, even bands that were trying to break on original music would still take high school dance gigs for money. I guess because I saw you guys play at my high school many times back then. Yeah. But um, Hush was this amazing thing. I mean, it was it was prog rock it was um really great pop sensibilities the singing was great the playing was unbelievable the production was unbelievable and every musician i knew back then was like watching this rocket ship called hush um and that was the band in the bay area that that we all knew was going to go to places talk a little bit about the story about hush about putting it together i mean you're well into your prog-
2: love for prog rock by this time right Oh yeah, definitely. And what was interesting with Hush, there was two bands in the area that were playing nightclubs and junior colleges and high school dances and stuff. And we both needed what the other band had. We needed my band needed a great bass guitar player because I was a guitar keyboard player, and their band needed a great keyboard player and a great drummer. And we put them together. Actually, a booking agency here put it together. Huh. The guy that wound up managing Lindsay Buckingham and Stevie Nicks. Mm. Um, that was the agency that was here. And put us together. And it was my idea. We do They used to do showcases for the high schools and colleges and all the venues that could, could have a band. they do a showcase. The agency would. And everybody would show up. There must be 500 people that were buyers. Of course, these buyers were... 17-year-old class presidents right. <laughs> and you know maybe a couple guys from clubs and stuff. But I decided instead of like all the bands to get 15 minutes to go and play three songs, that we were going to do eight songs in 10 minutes. We're going to cut it shorter, we'll do less songs. And that was the start of what Hush always tried to do. We tried to give more and be at the top of our game. So our segues were really tight. We went from anywhere from roundabout by yes to knights and white satin for the prom season by moody blues right. you know led zeppelin deep purple um fleetwood mac we all these things we put together everybody else played 15 minutes three songs which got a little old by the third song we played 10 minutes eight maybe even nine songs we got every gig from that showcase yeah. we were booked for the next year um they were fighting over getting us And I also felt at the time I'd seen a few concerts with the big lights and fog machines and stuff. I said, if we're going to do this, we have to do it like as a concert. We're going to bring the big stage into a high school gym. And so we had a fog machine. We bought our own lights. Um, We actually had a ring of fire around the drums. (laughs) And I'll tell you a funny story. (laughs) Wow. We, we We got so popular in the high schools at the cheerleader camp down in Santa Barbara had to have us play at the cheerleader camp. Now, we didn't know what this meant. That must have been terrible <laughs> for you. <Yeah. laughs> it was awful. It was awful. There's like a thousand, you felt like the Beatles, a thousand <laughs> screaming girls because they're being taught how to be really energetic and excited. And You have to make the crowd, you know, and we could teach you how to do this and get the energy going. But we come out on the stage and it was serious, like the Beatles. It was deafening. The screeching was ah! He's screaming and everything. And we played, I think we we're supposed to play a half hour, but we thought this would be so cool to do the fire ring right in the middle of this and take it down really soft. We know they're into energy, but we're going to do what we always do. We're going to take it a little bit farther. We're going to make them, see if we can get them to be quiet. All right. So we started nice and white satin. The fire ring was lighter fluid from cigarette, a can of cigarette lighter fluid. And you sprayed it around the asbestos ring. You hooked it up there and you lit it with a match. We lit the thing with the match and all the plastic lenses on the lights in that room, which was only 12 feet high, started to melt from the fire ring and and the sprinklers came on. (laughs) Wait, wait. (laughs) So you had a thousand wet cheerleaders that you uh, were playing. You know, (laughs) Paul, I got to say that I was wondering who would say that first. (laughs) 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 Yes, it was a thousand wet cheerleaders and uh, we weren't really appreciated by the staff there at all. In fact they sequestered us in the end of one of the halls in the because we were at the dorms there, we actually stayed on a floor that had nobody else but us on it. But you it's could create surprise, right? Yeah. Well you could get on the roof from the middle of the dorm and you can get down to lower floor, the upper floor. So they figured out we're gonna put these guys all the way at the end and, you know, make sure they can't get anywhere. It's <laughs> <That's> funny. <laughs> That's
1: so awesome. Talk a little bit about about hush. So you know like I said Hush was the most amazing band, you know. I remember just the presence of the band, the, the sound of the band, the quality of the music, the professionalism of the of the. Show. I mean, it was it was the band. Tell, talk a little bit about how far did you guys go, and and what okay. was the, what was the stopping point?
2: You know, and the thing is, before MTV, bands went down to a music store and they saw the equipment. They talked to guys who were playing it. They saw local bands. But you didn't see what the big guys are doing. Unless you're at a concert, a lot of times you didn't have a good enough seat. Yeah. We had the equipment that the big bands had. We had the best Marshall amps. Paul mm-hmm. Keller, a guitar player, had a, a sort of you know Gibson guitars and Fender, everything. Uh, Mesa Boogie amps, Marshalls. Our bass player played a Rickenbacker, which was very big in Europe, even though it's an American-made thing. And he got the Chris Squire sound, which nobody could get. Nobody in town could get the sound that Chris Squire got except for Gene Perrault. And all the bass players are just go watch him and go, how does he do that? What does he how does he get that sound? He was worship here in town for his tone. Even I couldn't get it. I don't know what he did. He just he had the right touch, you know. Yeah. And our drummer was a monster. He had a groove, but he could also play the really fancy stuff, but even more than a lot of the progressive bands, he had a, a soulful kind of groove to him. So we had a feel to us. We I gotta say, we were playing an odd kind of music because Roundabout or Genesis Watcher of the Sky, they, they're not in even times, a lot of places. And everybody was dancing to us. I still can't figure out how that happened. But we gave well, you, them you a show. you were putting
0: on a show. that That's exactly it. You know, when you yeah. were talking about how you – uh, you know, you created your, your montage of, of tunes and, and compressed it down. I mean, this is like a masterclass for anybody in a cover band that's looking or any kind of band really looking to get gigs is, you know, pre- present yourself and think about what the audience is going to see. Not just let's, let's play our best three songs and hope for the best. Think about there's these people in the room that are going to hear 15 bands today. They don't want to hear another three songs, right? I mean, but you, you know, you put yourself in the mindset of your audience, whether it was these, you know, booking agents or, or just your crowds and you gave them an entertaining show. And when you do
2: that, people respond. Yeah. You have to have an idea. Then you have to sell that idea. And I, like if I was doing a cover band right now, there's, especially with the dance stuff, so much of it is the same. I would say. I'd try to do something different and say, watch this, people. And I've seen mashups like this. I'd play five songs all connected together. And I wouldn't make it more than eight minutes long. But they'd all have the exact same beat and the exact same sound. And only the words would change. And you go, look at that. And people would, they go nuts, you know. It's something that's different. Then you have to sell it to them. Look, I've got all these songs fit together. This all could have been the same song. And I say that because I do that. With December people, kind of. Okay. You know, my, my Christmas band. I mean, we take things, and we we mash them up, and we sell it to people like, look, this could, Angels we've heard on high could have been Journey's Don't Stop Believing, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and it, is. Go, it is. It is. They go, wow. It, wow, that worked. And it's entertainment, but then again, like Paul's band, they are our best, especially in the summer and stuff, our best man. He's the top of the heap. The band's great. All the musicians are great, but they they got a thing that a lot of other bands don't have well, that's really it, nice to you Robert well it's hard to put your finger on that sometimes but i think paul a lot of your band is like hush you guys are dedicated they want to yeah. be there you know Absolutely. it's it's not a job they want to be there and they're going wow we're so lucky to be here and we're going to entertain these people and that's what hush did and we always try to strive for you know not just the best equipment it's expensive but that we had our own lighting and stuff. We didn't just put a couple of light bulbs up like they did in those days or have, you know, um, it's hard to explain. Really.
1: I would agree. I think that's the thing is that Hush created a vibe that was very genuine and authentic. You wanted to create an environment for your fans to experience your music. It's different than a, than a, than a um, something that someone puts together for the sake of show it was part of your show it was integral yeah. to experiencing what hush did and it and it just sold through because it was so genuine and authentic i want to ask a, a few questions no actually first thing i want to ask you about hush is is any hush music still available for people to find now
2: you know i got to tell you i hate the the hush albums cuz i was not a good songwriter not a good singer and again i'll say in those days we didn't have mtv We didn't have the internet. We had nobody to learn from. If I would have lived up with Carlos Santana and Neil Schoen, everybody up in Marin, I could have learned from them, but I had to learn, and I was, it was my band. You know, I was a guy writing most of the songs and singing most of the original stuff anyway, and I look back and now I really hate it, but Paul knows I just did this acoustic thing for two hours with my guitar player friend, uh, Paul Keller, who's a fantastic musician, and the premise of it was, from where we started in Hush to where I wound up with Greg Kinn now. Greg huh. Kinn band. Yeah. And so I had to do this, these like four Hush songs. And I'm like, oh geez. I don't want to do that. Oh, I don't want to do that. Well, the first show we did, a lot of people turned out, the new Hush. And the guy said, Hey, you're gonna do Who Holds the Light, right? That was our first single that got radio play. I went, uh Really? Oh man, that was a part of my life. Like that what a great song. i really and then someone says, what about Got to Keep Your Music Alive off the second album? He goes, I can't tell you how many problems I've had in my life, especially in the high-tech business here. That song, Got to Keep Me Music Alive, I live by that because music was my, the most important. I said, really? Huh. You know? yeah, and then I get, touch people. Yeah. Oh, my God. There's this song, Hollywood, that was like 20 minutes long that Hush was really known for around here in a big way. But I think it's awful. And this guy, Stan Cody, who's a very famous local guitar player, and he also went to England and worked for Neve, uh, which is recording yeah. equipment, worked for uh, digi design and, and now he works for Fender, designing their stuff. This guy's a genius. He goes, he saw, I see this on online. You're, you're going to do Hollywood, aren't you? My God, I got to get there. I'm thinking, wait a minute. I, this is all material. I can't stand any of this. But this was a timestamp in people's life. Absolutely. Absolutely you know it I guess it doesn't have to sound great and be sung great if it connects to you at a time in your life and it it, you know I'm still learning I guess that Oh, I don't know what I'm learning it's always something right
0: yeah listen
2: listen, listen to your fans
0: right that's
2: the keys
1: I'll tell you a story Robert I um I told I told Paul Keller this the other day um you guys played at my high school yeah and uh my favorite hush song was lies oh and and uh and you guys were in between songs. And I just kind of whispered up to Paul, play lies. And then he called it and, and you guys played it. And then after the gig, Paul, so remember, I'm a, I'm a high school musician at the time. Paul, the only guy who I've ever been within five feet of that's made a record, asked me to follow him back to his car. He, he gives me an album. And it was like a huge moment for me in terms wow. of like, this is just a guy. I mean, he's he, he's talking to me. He's saying thank you for liking my music. And, and it, it's, it's a story that's stayed with me my whole life. And I'll tell Paul this, and I thank him for it now, but it's probably one of those watershed moments that made me want to
2: keep playing guitar. That's, that's really cool. Yeah, and you know, like I said, it doesn't matter how good or bad. It's a time stamp. Of, it, I have the same thing. I mean, we opened for Ambrosia, Hush did, and I was just blown away, just blown away. And when I find out there's an opportunity that David Pack was li- leaving that band, I hunted them down for a year to get in that band. I finally got in. But it was that moment that I remember on stage going, wow, these guys, this is the kind of band I want to have. And Ambrosia at the time was a little bit progressive. They hadn't done the biggest part of me yet, I don't think. They didn't do the R&B stuff. But they little bit progressive, but still soulful. And that was one of those moments for me. And I said, because Hush was doing all progressive. I said, you know what? This is the kind of progressive I want to be. The cross mm-hmm. is over a little bit. Yeah. not You know? I still remember that. That's awesome, man.
0: All right,
1: yeah.
2: so Hush hush hits a wall, and it's yeah. time for you to move on. Let me tell and, you how it, that happened, Paul, because it's interesting. I think you'll find this interesting anyway. Hush won a Bammy. This It's the highest award in California for a local band, Best Barrier Band, in 1981 or two, something like that. And I looked around, and that was it. There was nowhere else to go. No record companies are going to sign us. That it just wasn't happening. I, I could just why, feel. Why it. not? Um, I, I think because of me, in particular, I wasn't a good singer. I wasn't a good songwriter. But what's funny? Well, it was a couple of years later. I was actually writing songs that Hush wasn't doing because I felt they were too soulful and too personal. I had stuck them in, you know, the studio vault kind of. said, "Well, that's fun," because I, 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 when I write a song, I record a song because I have that capability to do it here. And all these songs that were more soulful and had deeper meanings were stuck aside because Hush at that point was going to be Foreigner or the Knack or maybe the New Genesis. Kind of, you know, we weren't going to be uh, Oats, Let's say something a little more soulful or um, Bruce Springsteen, some of that really had meaning to the words. We weren't going to be that. We wanted to be Foreigner. Let's rock. <laughs> so. <laughs> I said, you know, guys, we failed. And they looked at me, what do you mean we failed? We're packing places. Yeah, but nobody cares. I said, if we want to do an original album, we have to reboot this band. We have to throw out all the progressive fans. How do we get rid of them? Let's do two hours of Rolling Stones music. Nothing but Rolling Stones at all the clubs. We're going to call it the Rolling Stones Rock Review. And on stage, we're going to say we're the Stowing Clones. (laughs) And they looked at me like I was nuts. I said, I want to do this. And there's this place called the Country Store. Tony wants to do it. Can we give it a try? And they said, well, whatever. Okay, well. we So we did it. And not only did we get rid of all the progressive fans, you couldn't get into the clubs when we started doing it. And I successfully rebooted Hush from being a band that might make it with original, a couple albums to a band that was just a Rolling Stones cover band. And then we went out and did another album and it failed miserably. And I broke it up. So I just,
1: wait, wait. So first something. of all, well, here's what I'm getting with this. You were the first tribute band in the world. Probably.
2: Well, I, there was a lot of Elvis acts then. it wasn't oh, like I, I made it. it up. You know, I thought, wow, these Elvis acts, this is kind of a schlocky thing to do. Look at the crowd. You know, so they're not the kind of crowd that we had in hush that were a little bit snobby musicians and people that like this, stuff with all the instruments and everything. But look at how faithful they are. And honestly, another example for me, and this was my analyzing Paul McCartney, when he left the Beatles, he had one good song on that album, Maybe I'm Amazed. Now, I liked a bunch of them, but Maybe I'm Amazed was a tremendous, incredible song. He even had a song in there called Junk. I felt like he said, I got to start over. I can't go from the Beatles up. I have to go down. Yeah. But he had to put Maybe I'm Amazed on there because he had to have one good song, you know? And I went, <laughs> he couldn't you know, help think, himself, yeah. Yeah, I think McCartney did this. I really do. And I told the guys that. I said, This is what McCartney did. I swear I can tell. He has a song even called Junk on there. I mean, <laughs> he has to start over, and we need to start over. So and so you yeah.
0: you this is fascinating because so many bands I I've, I've been in them you know do well enough that you could kind of keep going and 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 may, maybe you, you know become a a an established recording act that you know worldwide or whatever it is uh but then it you know you just kind of fizzle out on your own and then some bands unintentionally kind of follow that path but then wind up selling out in a different way you very intentionally Turn to what people would call the sellout path. You know, we're just going to play all yeah. covers. It's going to be all Stones, and this is a hundred percent what we want to do. It's not going to happen by accident. It's just going to be the thing. And here we are. So I, it's fascinating. We, yeah,
2: I also felt that the Stones fans were the guys that drank the beers and <sighs> the girls, the girls that like to dance and like Mick and stuff. You know, yeah. I mean, it was calculated in a way because I didn't want to have a crowd that. I wanted to spend, you know, what, six bucks on a drink then. I wanted to have a bunch of people spending $1.25 on a beer and having fun. Yeah. That's the only way to really throw out the old and bring in the new is how, how do we change our whole demographic, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. It's brilliant. I, there, there's bands move, that would,
0: would want either one of those pieces of success, and, and you had one and traded it immediately for another and it worked. I mean, there's, there's, you don't give yourself enough credit. You, you say that you killed uh, that band, which is maybe true, but at the same time you reinvented it a couple of times successfully. So I think well, that's
2: pretty good. Of course, then we went out and we put another album, which failed miserably. And I said, that's it. Um, you know, we can't reinvent it again. And I did kill it. I mean, we had yeah. a, well, across the street here from the studios, it was a place called Smoky Mountain, which is a 600 seat place that, everybody loved us there we did two nights in a row there and that was it and did they know I, it was a goodbye shows were y- they yes as yes definitely i mean people were crying on the dance floor these people <laughs> that wanted to hear uh feels like the last time by phone or, or start me up by the stones were crying <laughs> <You> know, <it's laughs> like, i mean i'm not trying to belittle that but i'm thinking you know guys it, it it's just it, it's gone is it, nothing's happening and and What happened when I killed it, I didn't know what I was going to do, but it's funny that KOME, the radio station here that was so big, called me. They said, you have to be in the rock search, and we're doing this rock search. And so I put together all these songs that I had put in my drawer, and I put them all on an album. There's a company in Taiwan that wanted to press albums for me. They said, we'll give you 500 albums free if you just let us show you how good our quality is. So I put all these songs, 10 songs on an album. Sent it to Taiwan. They sent it back. It was beautiful. The loose shrinker. I mean, this vinyl was the best. You was really thick, beautiful, shiny uh, sleeve. I thought, wow. And I had 500 of them, but I started giving away because I didn't really have a, a platform. And K.O.M.E. had got one. We love this song. We want to put this. You can't do that on the radio. We want you to represent it in Rock Search with the San Francisco station. It's a big battle of bands. I said, why well, don't we have a band, you know. So I put the Robert Berry band together to do this gig. And during that time, Carl Palmer called me on the phone because a friend of mine had sent this album because he did the artwork for it to every record company and Cashbox, Billboard, Record World, with the big magazines in. It got a pick of the week in every magazine. Something I didn't want to put out that I did just because I got five hundred free pressings. <laughs> so the the material that Hush would never do because the meanings were too personal. And the music was was funkier and and, and you had more of a groove, even though it was still rock. Just got three picks of the week, and KOME playing one of our songs. And Carl Palmer called me. I heard your album. I really <laughs> like your writing. Would you would you want to start a band? I,
1: okay, wait, wait. You can't you can't just breeze over that though. <laughs> what is it like to get a phone call from Carl Palmer?
2: Well, I'm in my control room right now. Right, right over ten feet behind me is my office where I answered the phone when the, the guy, uh, Pat, that works, I think Pat wasn't here then. It was Peter Roberts, who was uh, my tech on, on the road, too. He goes, Carl Palmer's on the phone. Yeah, sure it is. I figure <laughs> this has got to be my friend Richard Katz, who uh, had done a lot of artwork for me. He was a drummer I played with in high school. I said, picked up the phone, hey, Richard, what's up? He goes, no, no, this is it's Carl. He goes, I'm at Geffen, and I'm listening to your tape. Carl has a very high voice. It's, it's, and and it was a cassette tape. And he goes, I really like it. And I'd like to meet with you. Wow. So I, I didn't know what to say at that point. Yeah. I mean, I had played some Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer songs in Hush because we were a progressive band and I idolized Keith Emerson. But this guy was calling me. And I, I just hung up the phone. I looked at Peter. I said, that was really Carl Palmer. He goes, really? Because he didn't know anything about that music, really. You know, he, he was more, he's a rocking kind of guy, an engineer right. here at the studio. He wants to meet. He, he's interested in starting a band. And honestly, what Carl wanted me to do at first, he was looking at me to replace John Wetton in Asia, because John had some uh-huh. uh, had some problems. And after three albums or so, um, those problems were ruining Asia's chances. But Asia was so big that they wanted to keep it going. And once Carl and I met, which we actually, I went to New Jersey because he says, I got this other guy, Joe Lynn Turner, and you and me. And uh, Joe Lynn Turner was a singer for Rainbow yeah. right before that. And a great singer. He goes, we could have great vocals. great He writes good songs too. And um, Carl had told me that Asia had ruined themselves so bad that he didn't want to keep that going. So this just, is this
0: is just Carl Palmer being like, I'm going to say this and, and I don't believe it, but like any other drummer that finds musicians he likes and he wants to start a band and he's excited about it.
2: That's half the truth. The other half of the truth is that Carl Palmer is a dynamo. He, if you get, I don't care what band, what business, whatever else, if you get Carl Palmer in it, he has more energy. And I just saw him a few months ago when his, his band came through San Francisco and I got the three hours early to talk to him about stuff and five minutes before he's going to go on stage, he goes, well, I ought to take a few minutes and get my, my aunts warmed up and stuff. I go, Carl, I, I've been trying to leave you for the last hour and a half. You know, he goes, Oh no, we're fine. He has so much energy and so much vision and focus. And I didn't know this at the time, but if he's involved in something, it's going to happen. It's just huh. amazing. And uh, yeah, that was him. Wanting to do something that had a little more American twist to it, though, um, at that time, sure, we got we got together with Joe Lynn Turner, and unfortunately, Joe Lynn Turner took me aside. He goes, you know, it's interesting. Uh, this band could be really good because, but I'm not going to be doing your songs. We'll have to do all my material. <laughs> and I, i'm i'm nobody right i've i've never had a i mean i put out my own albums we got a bandy off the album we put out independently sure charge.
0: 500 copies I'm, yeah
2: yeah i'm looking at my my best shot here with carl palmer and this guy's telling me i'm not going to do your material you know and i'm thinking okay oh yeah no problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and i went back to carl and i said uh well carl i mean he uh wants to do something but he doesn't want to do any of my songs so i'm okay with that and carl said what he doesn't want to do your songs and he's going to dictate to me who's going to do what. He goes, we'll go back in there and pack up. We're out of here. Wow. And just like that, Carl and I bonded in a way that, I mean, I can't tell you how much this guy did for me and Keith Emerson did too. But Carl was the first guy to say, I think you're a talented guy. I, I, I like, he goes, you're the most English American I've ever met. Cause I, I'm, I'm a doer. I'm a, I'm a worker ant. I like to get things done, you know, yep. and I don't like to BS and, and talk about a lot of stuff. And, um, I just, I've always been a worker and he liked that about me. And I produced albums, I had a studio, I wrote songs, I sang all the things that he wasn't, I was, plus I was easy to get along with. And he right away noticed this. And that's the kind of guy he is. I think that's why he's so successful. Um, I don't even know where I'm going with this, but I, I just can't say enough good things about the energy of Carl Palmer that I didn't know I was connecting with this guy that was going to make huge things happen for me because sure. he, he makes them happen for himself.
1: Well, that's, Robert, so this meeting in New Jersey, I'm assuming it wasn't just you're having a cup of coffee. You guys are playing music, right? It's
2: JoLynn Turner, Alan Greenwood, the foreigner keyboard player, myself and Carl Palmer in the basement of JoLynn Turner's house. My gosh!
1: All right, so tell me, you plug in, and and uh, and Carl starts a groove. What's going through your
2: mind? You are playing with freaking Carl Palmer, yeah, for the very first time. It, it was interesting because my idea of a band was Ambrosia or Asia, which was a pop sensibility, but still a little bit progressive. Why wouldn't call it progressive? Just a little bit of musicality in there. Some of the breaks and some of the playing were virtuoso, and I like that. Even though I like the song having more of a pop sensibility. Um, and Jolin Turner was writing stuff just like Robert Palmer. um, "Addicted to Love," all his stuff sounded just like that. So it was easy for Carl and I to play his songs. It was three chords at the most, boom, 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 boom. You know, straight ahead. So we jammed on two of his songs, and that's not Carl's forte because mm. he was expected to do no roles and. Basically, you know, let's do it at like Creedence Clearwater would do it or something very simple, you know. <laughs> so Carl's all over the place playing these songs that are just straight ahead rockers. And Joe Lynn Turner's kind of going, well, I can't have that in my songs. Like, all these rolls, all his fancy cowbell and cymbal bells and all this. You know? And Carl's having the time of his life. And I'm, I'm sitting there. I'm just playing. I'm playing, you know, thunk, 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 thunk on the bass and watching Carl going, damn, this guy's good. I've always known he's good, but damn, he's good. And Joel Lynn Turner's going, God, this guy doesn't play what I wanted to play, the, the groove. And oh, my God, this, this guy's terrible. And that's why Joel Lynn Turner walked me outside. I'm like all over Carl thinking, man, this is amazing. And Joe's all over Carl thinking, this is awful. <laughs> <laughs> hey, one man's
0: trash, right? You know, that's right. Exactly. All right. So where does
1: it go? So Joe Lynn, uh, Carl says no thank you to Joe Lynn. And uh, what happens next?
2: Interesting that uh, Carl was determined, so he flew me to England, and uh, I was managed by Brian Lane at that point. We was Brian uh, Brian was Asia's manager, Yes's manager, and Donovan's manager. So, and also Carl's manager with everything else. So Brian got me over there, and Carl and I got in a rehearsal room at John Henry's a big rehearsal place there with Don Aries, who was Ozzy's keyboard uh-huh. player, and the, the guy that played in all kinds of bands, and. I think that was probably Carl's only mistake since, since I knew him. Is Don was a keyboard player, and Carl, of course, had played with the best keyboard player in the world, who had all kinds of ideas and all kinds of facility. You didn't need a guitar player with Keith Emerson, but a normal keyboard player, um, you'd probably need a guitar player to, to, to you know keep everything alive, the solos and everything. So we we're kind of, I mean, Don is a great, great keyboard player, but there was a lot of rhythm uh, chord pads being held and stuff. It wasn't like Keith, where a lot of sort sort of classical stuff going on. It's a lot of energy and a lot of movement, you know. And we did a couple days there, and nobody felt that it was happening right. So they sent me home, and I was like, damn, I was hoping that would be the thing, because I really wanted to get this thing in England going. Brian Lane calls me. Steve Hackett is leaving GTR. Steve Howe heard your songs. Would love for you to come and talk to him about being a part of GTR which had nothing to do with Carl, but Carl had opened this door and I had this manager. So I went there, I joined GTR for the year and spent all my time with Steve Howe, who's a guitar player from Yes. I'm sure everybody knows Uh that, that that your listeners, but in case they don't. Um, And let me tell you, that was as close to Asia and Ambrosia as I could have got in a band. Plus my vision with Steve, I'll tell you I always do things the way that I feel I can do them the best. I don't impose my will on you. I I want to bring the best out in you and and work with your vision too. But the piece that I give you is going to be what I can do the best my way, which doesn't interfere with what you want to do. And if you like what I add to it, um, then you have a, a good team player and some guy that's always going to have ideas and always have something to offer if you don't like it well we shouldn't be working together anyway you know but i embrace your ideas so i embrace steve howe because hush was a yes band i mean that was our favorite band i knew steve howe like the back of my hand and i said steve my vision for gtr is your guitar planes all over it within these songs which the first album was more synthesizer sounding because they triggered the guitars with synthesizers really an odd mm. thing for, for two famous guitar players to do right. and call a band GTR and it sounds like synthesizers. So he gave me a couple songs. He goes, well, this is what I want to do. And these are some songs I've written. So I said, okay, well, let me take them back to my, my flat tonight. And my flat was <laughs> 10 by 10. It was like a jail cell. It had the <laughs> toilet in, in the room, the bed in the room and a TV in the room. And it, it was very cheap. And what know, do you need? that's all I needed is by myself. I can almost touch the walls by stretching my arms out. (laughs) And I took these songs, I listened to them and lyrically, they were just terrible. There's a song called, you only have yourself to blame. And it was all about So you know, Steve had sort of written the words of somebody else about Paul, I blame you for everything and you better stand up and accept it. And, you know, accept the blame for what you did because no one else can accept that blame. You have only yourself to blame. And I'm looking at this going, oh, my God. Now, who's going to want to hear that? Paul didn't yeah. even want to hear me use him as we're speaking here, right, Paul? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't want that's to hear that. So I sat down and I pulled out everything I knew musically and started to rewrite this. And I came up with, "You have, there's no one else to blame. You have yourself to blame, meaning me, the guy that's singing, not you, the guy that's listening. And I took a lot of chances and I wrote all these lyrics that was heartfelt about, I'm sorry I hurt you and all these things, you know, but I only have me to blame, I realize now. And I took it to Steve. And I said, Steve, I've taken some liberties here. I said, if, if you don't like what I do and the way I do it, and I can't take what I feel is your best stuff, I said, I don't think we have something. So I'm going to take a chance here. And he had an eight-track t recorder. I put down the guitar part. With a little click track, and I sang the thing in front of Steve Howe. All, all, he had an attic full of, um, Paul, what are the guitars you played? Like a 175 Gibson and a, um, what was the three pickup uh, Gibson? The Switch Master? I mean, these are $10,000 guitars, wow, you know. Four and time. he has, oh my God, he has 30 of them down one row and all these fenders. And, and I'm sitting up there just with Steve Howe, one of my idols, and I'm doing this and I'm singing these words. There's Replacing no one else to blame. his words. Yeah. Yes. And a lot of the music and stuff, because I knew if I could put this out, what he would play during these sections would be classic Steve Howe. And he guess it. I said, Well, okay, there's the parts. I know you've heard me record them, but could we just listen to it once now with the guitar and the vocal? Because I'd done them separately, you know. He goes, Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. All right. And he's very quiet. He pushes play, and he gets to the end of the song, which is about six minutes. And he looks at me, he goes, I have never had anybody work on my material since John Anderson and yes, and do such a splendid job. Yes. And the hair still stands up in my arms because yeah. he was so taken back because he's a very sweet guy and a, and a very um, emotional musician. The way he plays all, you know, he, oh my God, he's just an incredible guitar player Plays all styles. He played country. We used to jam on country, Chittac and stuff. I had no idea. And I love country music. I did a lot of it in the studio when I grew up. And he'd play this stuff and I I was playing the rhythm to him, you know, and he was so good that when he said that to me, I thought, wow, this is a match made in heaven because I did exactly Mm. what I thought I should do according to his art and I hit his art spot on. So to work with Steve Howe, Was amazing for me because everything I had done, everything I'd learned, everything I knew how to do, matched what he had done. So we get now we get the band GTR together, and they say, Okay, we want you in the band, Steve says. And I said, You know what? Geffen wants to sign me as a solo artist. They were gonna make me kind of a new Brian Adams kind of guy, which is more straight rock. And they're really interested in that. And I said, I'll give all that up to to work with GTR. I love the band. I just want to be able to sing one song on the album. I I hate to give up all my singing. They said, great, no problem. Well, the singer heard that. And no matter what I did, rehearsal-wise or recording wise, GTR, he would not get off my back. Max Bacon's his name. And he'd he'd hate it that I said this, but he probably wouldn't disagree because every vocal I sang harmony on, he'd have to stand next to me and double it. And he was one of those guys that sang so loud you couldn't hear me. He just put it out. And I had written this whole album with Steve of stuff that I was so proud of and Steve loved. And we had a couple songs with the other guys, but not much. It was really Steve and, and me doing all the demos, getting it ready. And the demo sounded like a master because we went to a studio in England that was just like mine, so I knew how to handle it. And we got it all done, and Max was just harassed me every inch in the way as far as a musician, not wanting me to sing, not wanting me to be heard, that I just said, you know what? I can't do this. I, I'm going to go home. I'm, you have your album. The record company's okay. The, the budget. I don't want to spend the rest of my life trying to get my background vocals heard, let alone a lead vocal on a song, because Max is singing over me, and he's so powerful, or you know he gives me a bad vibe. I said, I'm not, I'm not happy here. So I was going to come home. I, I gave it up, even though yeah. I, I was nobody still. I had I had no... No foothold in the national scene at all. But, you know, if, if you can't be true to yourself and if you can't be happy. I, think I a have lot of to people say, you, have told,
1: you told two very important stories about your convictions and about your morals and your ethics about dealing with the music business. I think it's very revealing. I, I've always known you to be, I would say, tough. You know, like, you know your mind in all, you know, conversations i've had with you when we run into each other, when you share your advice, you come across as you know your own mind and you're not willing to bend from that. Has that served you well in the music business or have you ever have you ever, you know, maybe maybe i was a little too quick to make a decision. You know,
2: there's no way to tell. I regret leaving GTR like like the Ambrosia and Asia thing, you know, the type of music i really really liked. Um in hindsight, looking at the timeline of how music changed, I, GTR would have failed no matter what. Yep, We might have had one good album, but, you know, uh, Guns N' Roses was coming in. Um, Nirvana was coming in. Uh, music was changing, so GTR couldn't have survived anyway. But, but, but GTR then led you to three, right? I well, mean, GTR not existing led to three happening, right? It was even different than that. I yeah. mean, I was going home and— um, Gary, well, I won't tell a Gary Peel story about Boston, but Gary, Gary Peel played with Boston yeah. and, uh, Sammy, I mean, he played with Sammy Hagar and Sammy calls him one day and says, um, I'm going to join Van Halen. The next day, Tom Scholz calls Gary and says, we want you to play in Boston. He wasn't without a band for even a day, you know? <laughs> so I, I'm, I quit GTR and Brian Lane says, oh, okay, I guess you're heading home. And yeah, it takes three days. They book the tickets, three days. So I'm hanging around. He calls me the next day. He goes, Keith Emerson wants to meet with you for lunch.
0: Before you left
2: Europe? Before before I came home. He goes, before you go, you want to have lunch with him? And Carl had played him my cassette tape at the time. Yeah. And, you know, they were doing uh, Emerson, Lincoln, Powell and stuff and have all kinds of trouble. And Keith wanted to get out of that ELP thing like Carl had. Keith wanted some of the Asia money. And here's a guy that wanted to be in Asia or GTR or Ambrosia, because I kind of put them in that same kind of music. And Keith wanted in, and Carl had done it. So I said, yeah, I'll meet with Keith Emerson. Um, The first time I've been worried about meeting somebody, um, because I thought Keith was this genius, wacky Albert Einstein kind of genius, because the way he played, that wouldn't be able to speak You know, yeah, okay, well, yeah, uh, the middle C on the keyboard, we could talk about that, and that's about it. Yeah. So I said, okay, and I was really worried about it. We get together at lunch. He orders a bottle of wine. First thing he does, tell me one of these terrible jokes that he's known for. And we just joked about and had the greatest time for an hour. He was the greatest guy, and he said, Robert, I have to ask you a question. Real serious. I said, Sure. If we get a band together, which I'd like to do, by the way, would you mind doing a couple of ELP songs when we're on tour? <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> this is this, this is, is the question. I'm, oh yeah, this is what I'm all about, <laughs> Keith. I said that's that's your your legacy, the the heritage of Keith Emerson, the legacy. Oh my God, I said I would be honored. Plus, wouldn't that only help us? I mean, <laughs> you're a legend. You're a legend. I mean, anything we do, we should not push important pieces aside. And he said. That's it. Let's do this. It's that hour and a half total negotiations. And they were all jokes except for that two minutes. Yeah. this very, very
0: important. It sounds like he came in with that question. He knew he couldn't leave without, you know, without finding out that answer. So, you know, and and I was I I was a big fan of that three album. I was a big fan of ELP. And uh, and when that three album came out, it was right at the time. Uh, that I was, you know, steeped in prog rock. And so to have this new material that, you know, essentially, well, no, it wasn't essentially, it was new material from most of a band that I had, you know, uh, followed. It was like, oh, I, I, you know, I just ate it right up and loved all of it. Uh, really, really liked it because of the things that you're saying, it was prog, prog twinged pop music, you know, and it, it, it worked. I liked it. Um, I never got to see you guys but when but I've looked at setlist when you were on the road you weren't just playing your songs and ELP songs you were playing Bach, Brubeck, Bernstein, the Four Tops, yeah. right?
2: Yes. And it's interesting because Carl always told me you know he goes Greg doesn't play a lot of bass. We we can do more now. Uh-huh. and and the reason Greg 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 lays a great musician. What Carl was saying I think is Because Keith is so incredible, and Keith has a left hand, had a left hand, that was stronger than any other keyboard player's both hands. Keith played so much left-hand stuff that you kind of had to stay out of the way. Huh. But I was capable of playing that stuff with him so we could go a little bit farther and then get a little more, a little fancier, you know. And, uh, we, yeah, the, the the three set was something. And the problem with the three album wasn't what we had accomplished as a band together. The Proud 3 album was that Geffen had invested in me um, before that, sent me all around the country recording with people, doing some songs and movies and stuff that nobody knew about. And they wanted to get their money out of those songs. So two of the songs on the album really shouldn't have been there. They're not bad songs or good songs, but they could have been on my new Bryan Adams that I was, you know, sure. that, that Americana rock guy that they wanted me to be. They shouldn't have been on a Emerson, like a Emerson and Palmer and Barry album. But... um. I wanted to answer Paul's question because you asked me about the uh, if it served me well, just being who I am and kind of making those decisions. You know, Paul, I don't think it served me in the greater good as far as me getting somewhere and and being a wealthy, well-known musician, but it served my, my heart and soul kind of to say, whatever I've done, I've done it the best that I can do, and I've never embarrassed myself. Um, even if I'd had a struggle with something, I chose to struggle with it. And I think if I would have just stuck with some of the things um, like GTR and ate the crow that Max was giving me all the time and struggled through it and then had the music scene change, I'd be an angry guy by now because I wouldn't have stayed true to myself. And like I said, it hasn't made me a wealthy guy, but I have the important things. I think one of the points, and this isn't what Paul said, but one of the things that I like about certain people I know is they are who you know they are. They don't have to be nice to me if I know they're not nice. Half the time, I have this friend in San Francisco owns hotels, and is a Stones band. And he is the cutthroat businessman he wants to be. He's more fun than anybody in knows what he wants to be. And he's just a loving, sweet guy, um, even runs a little church. But he can be a cutthroat businessman at the same time. That's the guy I always wanted to be. You know who I am, and you're okay with me because you know I have these capabilities, and you accept it. And if you hide who you are all the time and you you take you know, you eat the shit if I could say that um, people don't really know who you are and I, I think we appreciate people you can really tell who they are you don't have to like them all yeah. the time yeah, which yeah. you do like them because you can trust them because they are who they are so I, I'm not sure I've been quite that guy because I do like people to like me and I I, I like to be nice to people and, and have uh, their sincere sincerity but it has served me in that way, where people know who I am as a musician. Um, that's not a bad.
0: I'm, I was going to say yeah. that's not a bad thing. That's a really good thing.
2: I would
1: agree. I, you know, as we grow older and we look back, and can we tell our families and our kids, and you know, what we stood for? So I, I have to say, Robert, I appreciate your answer sincerely.
2: Yeah, man. No, well, it's uh, it, like I say, it hasn't made me a wealthy man, but I'm a happy man. That's uh, dude. You know?
0: I know a lot of wealthy and unhappy
2: people, so, uh, you know. You chose wisely. I think you, yeah, man, that's good. You know what's interesting, too? I got to tell you that, you know, I've been in, I I don't have longevity in a lot of bands. You know, the the famous bands I played in last about two years because, like with Ambrosia, I'll I'll just skip ahead. I joined Ambrosia in the middle, mid-2004 or something. I started with them and two years later I looked back and I couldn't get them to do a new album. I mean, I replaced David Pack. David Pack's a genius. I mean, he he's the guy that wrote the song, sang the songs most. I mean, he was just an amazing guitar player and I replaced him. And so I didn't really have the say so or the power to make things happen, but I did a new promotional video. I got new photos for us. I wrote a bunch of songs for a new album. Three of us had recording studios and I couldn't make anything happen. So I look back at the two years, a year at a year and a half, I look back and I said, you know what? This is going nowhere. I don't want to go nowhere. I want to go somewhere, even if I have nowhere to go. And I say, guys, I'm sorry, I, I'm out because a year and a half behind me, nothing's happened. Yeah. And I've given every opportunity. I've bought in with all these possibilities. I've never pushed anybody. I'm not trying to control it. But I've offered these possibilities. Even Steve Miller's manager is interested in managing us. They wouldn't move on it. I'm out and that, 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 uh, takes, not, uh,
0: that takes guts I, and, and I don't care what
2: business you're in,
0: but to identify that, look, this is it. it, you know, failures are easy to identify yeah. wild successes, easy to identify, but those things that could just kind the of the maintain in the middle, that's the most dangerous thing,
2: right? Uh, yeah, because, it's a kiss of death because yeah. it's it's just, you're just stale. You're stagnant. Yeah.
0: And it's, and, it's burning your time is what it's doing.
2: Yeah. That's right. And change always creates something new. If you can like it or not like it, whatever sure. happens, but it's sure. something different. And because I've done that and whenever I'm in something, I give 110% and I, I want to feel like I've given more than I've taken from a, a thing. And I, I call it a buy-in. I yeah. want my piece of ownership by buying into it. That's the reason that then Greg Ken calls me, right, and says, "You know, I hear you're not doing Ambrosia now, and I know you're a solid player. I, I want you in the band because I need somebody solid." And I, yeah, I don't. I, know. I get it, These, man. No, so yeah. okay.
0: So there's a, there's um, it, this has served you in in so much as as a musician, you've been able to play not only with many many people, but many many fantastic people and fantastic players. I um and and I, I mean, we could we could probably talk for another two hours uh, going through all the people that you played with, but I'm I'm curious about I'll ask about one thing and we'll see where it leads to a story. and Maybe we'll wrap after that and maybe uh, who knows. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I'm a Rush fan, right? Prog Rai, uh, drummer, growing up in the '80s. You know, it was inevitable. Yeah. And uh and you did you've done a lot of tribute albums uh and of course now that we've talked for an hour I know that this whole tribute thing is sort of part of your DNA but you did a fantastic vocal and guitar solo actually on uh on an album called called Subdivisions for a Rush song called Different Strings. Yeah. And you added harmonies to a Rush song that for the most part don't have these these lush harmonies. I thought it was really cool.
2: Yeah, I also did um Oh, with Eric Martin, uh, The Mission, and one of my favorite Rush songs. Oh, and Eric sang it, and I did most of the the tracks on it, except for the drums. We had a guest drummer, I forget his name. But, yeah, you know, what I try to do, and I've done ELP tributes, uh, Yes Tributes, Jethro Tull. I try to do things that Hush played. It's kind of funny, because Hush was a progressive band. All these tributes are progressive bands. So I try to do things that Hush played, but then I look at it, and I try to keep all the spirit and the song intact, but I try to think what would happen if we did the like, different strings. Man, it's been what ten years? Yeah. Like dust dust in the wind, or so, or whatever. You know, yeah, if we did right. It, yeah. Like like what an audience would like now. And a lot of times it's in the rhythm, like Roundabout. I did it's a funky kind of version, and it's it's really it's rocking, but it's it's got a groove to it. And a lot of that stuff, I just try to update it and keep the the original feel. That the, and a lot of the parts they played, but update the sounds, update the groove, and everything. And the Rush stuff, I got to tell you, that's the one band I wasn't a fan of because of Getty's voice in the early days. I just mm. it was too much like me. My voice was thin, and the vibrato was bad. And I I thought, oh, I don't want to emulate a guy like Getty Lee. That's just that's even more of what I already do that I don't like. You know. So I, I wasn't Rush fan until I did that album and now I'm a huge Rush fan. It goes to show you what you're exposed to. I didn't even listen to Rush really.
0: Yeah. And now sure.
2: I'm like, oh my God, listen to the lyrics of their songs. And Getty Lee blows me away. What what he does, he's like three people all in one. Absolutely. Of course. Um yeah. and of course the musicianship is great. Yep. Um but that yeah, but doing the harmonies and stuff again, want it to be heartfelt. I want it to do what I would do to give 100 to 10% of me and what I like if I was in rush
0: Yeah. No, I, 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 you know, I've heard a lot, I mean, I've heard a lot of tributes of everything, but you know, when there's a band that's close to you that was part of growing up like rush was for me, anytime there's a tribute project, I always approach it a little, a little more apprehensively than I would, you know, something that I, that's not as close to me, but that stuff like, yeah, you described it perfectly. It's, you know, you just, you, you, you made this rush song work for you and that's great. I
2: have, I have a funny rush story to go way back to the beginning of our conversation. I'll do it quick. Hush got to open for Rush at Winterland in San Francisco.
0: That's awesome. You still have a poster?
2: You you know, I I don't have a poster, but a guy that wanted to hear Gotta Keep the Music Alive, which is one of the, on the Hush albums, another song I didn't want to do. They said, you got to do that song. It kept me alive. You know, I brought a t-shirt that had Hush, UFO. I mean, I had Rush at the top, UFO and Hush. Those are the three bands that played this show. I didn't even know they had a T-shirt. This is, what, 30 years later, I see a T-shirt. I go, oh, my God, look at that. Anyway, we get on stage, did a little sound check, no big deal. We were first, we had a last sound check, and Rush's people were manning the monitors. They were up there, the crew. And we play our set about the second song in. The monitors are feeding back, and they're going, squealing, just so loud. Well, the guys had turned up the level, so they would squeal, because they thought that Hush was a ripoff of Rush name-wise. We just changed one letter they they had no idea it was really a deep purple kind of thing you yeah. know the 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 song was hush and we we all liked it and played it at our first showcase and they let them feedback and feedback so loud that we couldn't do anything i finally just looked at them and said cut off the monitors we just shut them off and they smile and go oh, yeah we can do that so they cut them off and if you ever played on a really big stage without the monitors uh-huh. all you, it's like a basketball court awesome. all you hear is the echo down the oh, it God. was terrible but they were happy to do that yeah, you know? I'm sure and, they were. Yeah, it was still a good show. We were so that was our first big concert. It was great to be there. But the roadies and Rush thought that Hush was trying to steal the name, kind of. And then the funny,
0: they were they were looking out for their for their for their guys. Huh? That's right,
2: Robert. We
1: could do this for many more hours, but um, I think we're going to pull it all together here. So thank you so much for your time. Let's talk about what you're doing right now. Um, so if Greg Kins
2: out there, playing,
1: we'll see you on base, right? Definitely.
2: If Sammy's yeah, out there playing what we see on bass? No, I don't I haven't done Sammy. Sammy was the mid nineties for me. And um right when they were Van Halen was kicking him out, he uh he asked me if I do the bass for I think three years I played bass for him. He was a fantastic guy to work with, a lot of fun, but I was just a bass player in his band, you know. Gotcha. Sure. Um you don't write songs with Sammy Hagar and stuff that much. He does his own he's a dynamo too. He does Got his it. own thing and he's amazing. What I'm really doing now, of course, is December people. Which and, is awesome, by the way. Well, every November, December, guitar player from Boston, the drummer from Sammy Hagar, the keyboard player from the twos, myself, Jack Foster, international solo artist. We get together, and we do December People, which is a mashup of songs you know, like uh, LaGrange by ZZ Top and Santa Claus is Coming to Town. So <laughs> you, you, you know the Christmas song. We do the—this is part of my sound-alike history, too. It goes way back to my first thing that I learned— Charting out stuff, you you know Santa Claus is come in town. You can sing it, but it's done with the music of Lagrange to it, and it, or we do Rush. We do a Deck the Halls, and we do three Rush songs: Tom Sawyer. Oh, I forget the, the other two. There's we have so many Brilliant. albums now, and you think, oh my God, Deck the Halls fits in that like it's the original song. You just you just can't believe it.
0: So this is an album you put out, or you put on a live show to oh, do this? It's
2: a live show. We're tuning. Oh, I got I got to come out next December yeah. and I'll see this. Oh. And we have, we have four albums out too. I mean, uh, yeah. Okay. You, you can find it on uh, Pandora and, you know, iTunes, all that stuff. It's December people. And it's the most fun that you could ever have. By the way, Paul, I got an Apple watch and every time my other phone rings, which I put aside, my, <laughs> my wrist vibrates. <laughs> so I, I'm not, I'm not used to it yet. I, you know, I do this
0: other podcast called Mac geek gab and we answer people's questions
2: just like that. So if oh, you need any man. help, let me know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, anyway, December people is is my my passion and my, my dream to uh, go out there. We do it for the food bank, or um, here we're doing next this coming year at San Jose Civic. We're doing it for the downtown city street team, which does the homeless cause here. They do food, blankets, shelter, everything, and um, it's a pretty big deal wherever we go. We only represent some charity that's in that town. We don't do any national or worldwide charities. Only go to that town to help that that city or town help their people. And it, it's a big deal to me, really. All right. So where can uh, people I, find you on the web, Robert? Uh Decemberpeople.com. Okay. Or there's a RobertBerry.com too. Robertberry.com goes through all the bands. I've been it has a history, a little there's a little dust tape down at the bottom there, like a little slideshow thing you click mm-hmm. on. It'll talk about GTR and hush and everything. There's all kinds of stuff on there. Thanks Very so cool. much
0: for coming, man. This was yeah, what a absolutely. blast. Ugh.
2: Hey, well, Robert, thanks for I, I inviting just, me. Well,
1: it's been a pleasure having you. And, and I do want to say to you, you know, I, and I think I've said this to you in person, you have the admiration and respect of all musicians in this area and that you give so freely of your advice and you're so encouraging of the music scene around. You're just a true gentleman. And I just want to personally thank you for all that you've done for me and my band. But uh, just every community needs a guy to look up to to know that it's possible to keep going farther. And you've walked amongst the gods and you have great stories to tell. And uh, you're just a really cool fellow. So thanks well, for everything, Robert.
2: Paul, you only know half the people evidently in our area then. <laughs> <laughs> and Paul knows a lot of people, let me tell you. No, I, I appreciate that. I, I, You know, you if you care about music and you care about people, and I, of course, care about our area here. I, I wish we had more live music going on and more people being successful at music. You know, you, you do what you can, and I don't think I'm anybody special in that, but I, I certainly hope that I add something and don't take it away. Just like you do, Paul. I mean, your band, Paul has the top band. You go to these street festivals and stuff, people come out to see them. They have a good time. They're seeing everybody in that band's a, a quality musician, yeah. having fun, though. You know, they're having a good time. That's what a lot of people miss it.
0: That's the That's trick. What a,
2: yeah. Keith Emerson called me in the middle of last year and said, my God, I just listened to our live album. We were so good. Keith, because we were having fun. Awesome. Oh, before we go,
1: you're working on this Keith Emerson project as well, aren't you?
2: You know, Keith and I were doing an album. We're supposed to do an album in May. Of course, first of March, first couple weeks there, he he died. And they've asked me to complete the album. I have some stuff from him. I started to and didn't feel right to me. So I've put it aside for now. Maybe, Maybe in a year I'll feel better about it. But he was such a big part of my life. Who I am, my success. Um, friendship from the king just makes you feel. Uh, I can't even tell you how it it empowers you to have a guy like that call you in the middle of the night and say, "Man, I'm listening to our album. Damn, you know when we did that? That was it. Just awesome. it's amazing, you know. Yeah. So it's it's hit me pretty hard, and I can't seem to to get going. Th- those
0: experiences um, make you pretty darn wealthy, my friend.
2: Well, yeah, that's for
1: sure. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for everything, Robert. You're the best.
0: You can find us at giggabpodcast.com, folks. Robert, again, thank you so much for joining us. What a great time. I'll we'll See you next yeah. week. Actually, we might see you in two weeks, folks. I think next week is the 4th of July. We'll post on our Facebook page at giggabpodcast Podcast there.